I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge, you know, they're, they're to- total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the hell that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to phone it in. And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. I just want to give a quick shout out to my buddy, Randy, uh, from the Red Thread Podcast. Uh, I just listened to his episode with uh, Juan from the One-on-One Podcast, who I recommend uh, going to listen to both those guys. Pretty entertaining work on, on both sides. Uh, but Randy uh, sparked uh, an article that I had read back in, jeez, uh, oh, probably 2021 now um, about, you know, Chicago being some old world city, uh, you know, much older, you know, we're talking 1400s or earlier. And, uh, and, and so I started thinking, I'm like, oh, yeah, I had I have a couple articles on um antiquities and old world America. And it gets me into this, these books I've been reading uh, called America is the true old world. And it's a couple part series. And then they also have one that's called uh, pyramids in America. And then I also came across this book called unearthing ancient America, which is kind of along the lines of what uh, Graham Hancock did in uh, America before. And so if you haven't read Graham Hancock's America before, I highly recommend that because that's a good place to start in all this. Uh, he does a great job. I mean, he goes, what is it, like five, 600 pages, I think. I mean, the book is tremendous. Um, so take your time, book wisely. But no, uh, basically what I wanted to do is start showing you some of the lies that we've been told about history. And, and so what I have here is a Raftsman Journal article called Antiquities in America. And this is from January 6th, 1858. Okay, and this article is, uh, is written by S.B. Rowe. Um, and it's from the Clearfield, Pennsylvania area back in 1854. 
So now let's read through this article. It says, throughout the entire length and breadth of the country, washed as it was by the waters of the two mighty oceans and abounding in natural resources, enormous beyond what is impossible to conceive, we find much to admire in the aspect of beauty of nature. And whether we travel from distant shores of Maine and New Brunswick to the golden sands of California and the shores of the Great Pacific or from the crystal lakes of Minnesota to the orange groves of Florida, we behold throughout the immense extent the features of nature, grand and beautiful in every form and aspect. The mineralogist, the geologist, the naturalist, the botanist, and even the antiquarian have all a rich field here. Strange it may appear America abounds in antiquities, so extensive, so beautiful, and majestic as to rival those of Thebes and Nineveh, ruins of ancient cities of immense extent, fortifications, mounds, and pyramids, temples with walls built of hewn stone and refined taste in architecture, and adorned with human figures beautifully executed, large altars ornamented with hieroglyphics, probably giving a record of those who reared them, but which no man has been able to decipher. Remains of ancient palaces with beautiful specimens of sculpture and painting with many other marks of ancient greatness. Prove to us this is not a new world, but a powerful empire that existed at a very remote period of time, teeming with a population of highly skilled in arts and in a state of civilization far beyond anything we have been led to conceive of the Aborigines, previous to the discovery of the continent by Europeans. So right here, guys, I mean, this he's saying that America is abound in antiquities, you know, just these beautiful, majestic. He's talking about pyramids, mounds, temples. I mean, I mean these huge buildings that are ornately decorated and (laughs) i'm sure he's not talking about plaster like they tried to sell us on the world's fair so what he's saying and this is 1858 so i mean even at its best we're talking 350 years of america they didn't build this according to the story we've been told have any of you been told about ruins of ancient cities no, we're, we're given the old West stories of these, you know, dusty towns with the, you know, the saloon that has the door that you push swings open, you know, just this, we're given this very peasant view of everything. And this is telling a completely different story. So we look, the antiquities of America extend from the Eastern shores of Maine and Massachusetts to the Pacific and from the Great Lakes and British dominions to Peru and La Plata in South America. And in fact, throughout the extent of both continents, immense forests grow over the ruins of large cities and the gigantic sides of trees with indications that other generations of trees sprung up and grew before them proves that the ruins were in existence before the Christian era. In every portion of the United States, interesting ruins have been discovered. In the state of New York, have been found sculpted figures of 100 animals of different species, executed in a style far superior to anything exhibited by any of the existing tribes of Indians. The state of Ohio abounds in ruins of towns and fortifications with extensive mounds and pyramids. We've heard about this. 
you know, and, and go look it up the serpent mounds. I mean, that's mind boggling. Uh, and that's one of many. I mean, there are, and that's why I, I recommend going and looking at the um, pyramids in America. And actually, let me see if I have it. Uh, do, 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 do. Let's see, here it is. So if we look right here, this is what the pyramids of America, and that for those of you listening, I mean, basically from upper Minnesota all the way down through Oklahoma, Texas, down in through, I mean, it's thick in through Mississippi and Louisiana. And that's where a lot of the Moors supposedly, uh, not supposedly, Moors were based out of. Um, and we look and there are just thousands of these things now they're they're called pyramids uh i'm not sure if they're all pyramids some maybe mounds uh he does he does do a distinction but the you know the map is just not somewhere where we can read it to that extent but think about that to build and we're not we're not talking about little dirt piles here we're talking about massive mounds okay and this is what we're dealing with and, and so this is obviously a previous civilization. So he goes on to say at Marietta and in Missouri, beautiful pottery, silver and copper ornaments and pearls of great beauty and luster have been dug from the earth. In caves of Tennessee and Kentucky, mummies have been found in a state, high state of preservation with cloth uh, of cloth, clothed with claws of skin of various texture inlaid with feathers like discoveries have been made at Carrollton near Milwaukee in the state of Wisconsin. Ruins of huge fortifications appear. Similar ruins appear in the state of Missouri. On the south side of the Missouri River in the western port portion of the state is an enclosure of some 500 acres, which includes the ruins of a building, no doubt ancient tower, with walls over 100 feet high and 80 feet wide at the base, attached to which are a redoubt and citadel, which uh, with, work, <laughs> with work much resembling the structure of a tower in Europe. So think about that. 500 acres, 100 foot high walls, 80 feet thick at the base. I've never been told about walls like this in America. This is Missouri. But in the south of Mexico, that magnificent and beautiful ruins present themselves in abundance. Ruins of majestic cities and magnificent temples and altars with beautiful works of sculptures, tastefully wrought uh, palaces with paintings, colors, chiefly sky blue and light green, which shows their richness and elegance to be the work of highly cultivated people. These ruins, majestic and beautiful in appearance, but overgrown with thick forests of mahogany and cedar of immense dimensions and great age, proved to the world with, that a great empire existed here at a very remote period of time, and that this empire teemed with an immense population of people skilled in the mechanical arts in an advanced state of cultivation. The most extensive ruins are to be found at the Uxmal and Palenque in southeast Mexico. At Uxmal, are immense periods, uh, periods, pyramids coated with stone and quadrangular stone edifices and terraces. The highest of these pyramids is 130 feet, and on the summit, it supports a temple. 
and on one of the facades of the temple arc four human figures cut in stone with great exactness and elegance. The hands are crossed upon the breast. The head is covered with something like a helmet and about the neck is a garment of skin of an alligator over each body is a figure of death's head and bones. So we're not talking about um, some of the shoddy uh, monuments that we've seen at the world's fair that they kind of did on the scene or at that time that could not even match up to what was originally there. I mean, it was a joke. They, they could not replicate it. And that's what we're talking about here. They, they, there's pyramids all over. There are more pyramids in North America than all of Egypt. Now, if you want to include Central and South America, it's not even close, uh, the amount of pyramids. So that's also something that we're not really taught in, in, in school about America. Now, at Palenque, a great uh, city of great extent, are immense ruins with the remains of a royal palace, one temple, that of Copan. 520 feet by 650 and supposed to have a lar- as large as St. Peter's at Rome. Another temple of great dimensions is here, having an entrance by portico 100 feet long and 10 feet abroad. It stands at an elevation of 60 feet. Think about the size of this. This is a massive structure. The pillars of the portico are adorned with hieroglyphics and other devices. Different objects of worship have been found, representations of the gods who were worshipped in this country. These temples with 14 large buildings, many other objects of curiosity stand here as monuments of ancient greatness to remind us of a remote origin of a mighty empire. This city, Las, has been described as the Thebes of America. And travelers have supposed that it must have been 60 miles in circumference and contained a population of roughly 3 million souls. Now, it's interesting here that he he mentions the 14 large buildings that immediately made me think of the Chicago Expo because they had the Grand Court and they had the 14 great buildings. So just a coincidence, possibly, or was this some significant number in these cities that they built these ancient great cities that they're talking about of this civilization gone centuries must have elapsed and dynasties succeeded each other before such orders of architecture were introduced and a great length of time must have passed before an empire would become sufficiently powerful to erect such temples and possess a city of such vast extent and looking back to the past we feel interested in the imagination that this people, once in the noonday of glory, enjoying all the fruits and luxuries of advanced civilization, but when behold these ruins, a melancholy reflection must at once seize our minds on the ground that where uh, once nations met in their strength and power, wild beasts now roam, and venous, venomous serpents wend their way. And over the vast cities, where they once busy, a busy hum of industry and voice of merriment resounded, grows the vast cedar on whose branches the owl chatters discordant notes and the bat sleeps at meridian in this country is exhibited the largest pyramid in the world that of Kalula, near puebla it covers 41 acres it's 200 feet high on its summit was a temple and in the interior have been discovered a vault 
roofed with beams of wood containing skeletons and idols. Several smaller pyramids surrounded this larger one. It appears to have been formed by cutting a hill into an artificial shape. Its dimensions are immense, uh, being nearly three miles in circumference and about 400 feet high. It is divided into terraces and slopes covered with platforms and stages and bastions elevated one above another and are formed large stones skillfully cut and jointed with cement. In some respects, the style of architecture resembles Gothic, being massive and durable, while in other respects it resembles Egyptian, yet the general construction manner and style of architecture is different from anything hitherto described in the world in Egypt. Hieroglyphics on stone denote remarkable events, which no one has been able to decipher. I mean, that's the thing I never knew also, was that I, I assumed that, you know, the, one of the Great Pyramids was the biggest. No, the biggest is Kalula. And it, it's bigger, quite considerably bigger than any of the pyramids in Egypt. So we, we have not been, they didn't necessarily lie to you. They just didn't fill you in on all the facts. They made you look again. When I think about history now, and I, I don't think teachers were intentionally deceiving you, but what they were told to teach us was to look here, right? They, they were pointed in a certain direction to, to listen and to follow and, and to, to guide us down to follow one narrative while what was going on outside of that narrative is, is a completely different story um, that doesn't necessarily add up with all the rest. So then you get into this, okay, what, what's with the, the deception here? Why, why didn't I know that there were so many pyramids in America? Why didn't they tell us this? And, and we'll get into that a little bit. So let's go on. A dark shade rests on the antiquities of America and a few rays of light enliven the gloom. We have ancient history to inform us of the events of Egypt, how that empire was founded and how it prospered and fell. We have the same record of Babylon, Nineveh, Greece, Rome, and Carthage, but not the least information we have relative to those erected in these cities and uh, what people and whence they came not a ray of light to dispel the dark gloom in which to rest the earliest history of America. So what this dispels guys is the myth of, you know, the TPs and these savages that roam the lands. There were civilized people now, now granted, was there a period where there were people that were savages? Yes. There were, there were, there were giants in this country. So who knows what was going on? But we have to understand that it's not as they told us. And my buddy Randy, that's why I say go listen to the podcast he did on Red Thread Podcast. He did a swap cast with Juan. And he goes into this talking about the giants. And if the giants were here already and, and these, you know, these Europeans are coming in, sure, they're going to fight for their lands. And, and of course, that's why now giants are, are depicted as bad and evil and, and nasty creatures and dumb and all this stuff. So we have to look at this in, in a way that, you know, the architecture now, here, here's another thing I, I want to throw out there and I want people to think about because I've been thinking about it for a while too. What if there were really two worlds going on? 
And what I mean by that is, is what if within the cities you had these grand immaculate buildings, you had this, you know, these energy centers that connected on a global level, these great cities, you know, high civilizations. But then when you got out into the countryside, that's where you had the people who were really suffering. I mean, they were living off the land, um, you know, maybe not suffering, but they weren't living the high life like the people in these, these cities. Um, and, or, or they were banished from being in the cities and were forced to live off the land. Um, I, I don't know. I, there's so many possibilities with the way things could have been that we, we haven't been told. Now, am, am I saying here there's anything wrong with living off the land? No, no. I mean, but that's that nomadic life that I'm talking about. And that's what I've seen a lot with when I was looking into the Tartarian people. It was a lot of tribes that lived off the land, at least at the end of the era. Now, initially, they were going around and just sacking everything in in their sight and just conquering lands. And like I said, uh, Fomenko even says that their empire stretched into America. And that's why, you know, basically west of the Rockies and, you know, north central United States, you know, and, and, and along the Ohio Valley, there were giants, and those was that part of it, one of these large civilizations that we're talking about quite possibly could be. So let's get back here. Architecture, sculpture, painting, and all the arts that adorn civilized life have flourished in this country at a period far remote. There's evidence sufficient to prove that these cities were in ruins at least 16 or 1800 years ago. Wow. In Palenque are the remains of an altar over which grows an immense cedar whose powerful roots enshrine it. The whole city is overgrown with mahogany and cedar trees of enormous size. The concentric circles of these trees uh, and well-known cycles for a year have been counted, which have showed they are more than 800 years old. And there were indications of another generation of trees that have sprung up before them. How few reflect on the fact that America is an old dominion, the seat of an ancient mighty empire. These facts are themselves every day to the eyes of the astonished world. And it is hoped that the spirit of inquiry, which seems to be present to animate all classes of learned men, may throw light on the early history of this remarkable region. Okay, and that that just sums it up right there is that. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not trying to rewrite the history books, but at the same time, I'm, I want to know what really happened and why are they covering it up? Because it does sound like a fantastic story back in the time that he's talking about. You know, he mentioned 1600 to 1800 years ago in America just flourishing and that makes you think and 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 when you know in the books america is the true old world he kind of says that it started over here and moved over there well this timeline wouldn't exactly uh prove that but it would give some credence to it because if if these ruins are that old the civilization must have been around for some time prior to that and what else does this do this blows up 
the bullshit Columbus narrative. And that's what we're going to kind of do today anyway, because that whole thing is just a joke. Um, the book that I got, Unearthing Ancient America by Frank Joseph. Um, it's basically a collection of articles uh, from old America that just proves that all the stuff and all the different peoples and, and things that they found that were pre-Columbus. So anybody that's still believing that Columbus discovered America, uh, I'm sorry, but you, you got to get off that train. That's a, that's a losing cause right now. All right. So now I mentioned before my buddy, Randy. So what Randy uh, was talking about in his episode with Juan was this long lost Chilaga, the Camelot of Chicago. And this article actually is from 1987. So it is, it is quite old, but I remember when I was doing my world's fair research, I did come across some uh, information about, uh, or I saw Chilaga on an old map and I started hearing about this, about how that may be where the buildings came from, that this may have been one of the capitals of the old world. And that's kind of where I'm going. I'm leaning towards with the World's Fair locations were that these were cities that were part of on a larger scale, part of the old world. I mean, we're talking even Omaha, Nebraska, Kansas City, Missouri. You know, St. Louis, Missouri, Chicago, uh, you know, we're talking East Coast to West Coast and everything in between. And so th this is an interesting one because the long lost city of Shalaga, it, it's, you know, talking about this ancient city where, you know, much like we just read about in the article, it would talk about these lavish buildings and these civilized people, these great people. Um, who we've never heard of before, but again, and, and what it'll say in this article is that it was on, on one of the old maps um, and you will hear it. And it, it may be just an old Indian name for it, but I don't believe that that's the easy scapegoat answer to this. So let's look at it. Is Chicago, the ancient mythical Chalaga, a place that appeared on maps more than 200 years before it was founded. Experts remain skeptical but a map published in Venice in 1605, long before even the Great Lakes showed up in North America, hints that it may be. A local research at Newberry Library has been investigating how the name appeared on the map. The map was a reissue of the book La uh, Le Relatione Universale. Uh, good luck. Yeah, that was awful. Written uh, in 19, uh, 1591 by priest and geographer Giovanni Botero. At the time it was written, uh, there was no English speaking settlements on the North American continent. What was known about the continent came from sailors who had charted the coastal area from explorers such as Jacques Cartier, who had traveled up the St. Lawrence River, River and from Indian accounts of the unknown interior. Remember, we were talking about that before on some of the maps. They they had parts unknown on some of the maps. Um, you know, just land that that was supposedly not discovered. Now, Fomenko would argue that this land was discovered and that the reason why they didn't have detailed maps is because the Europeans were not allowed into these lands because the peoples of the lands wanted no part of the Europeans in their land. So it goes on to say here, in the heart of the continent, 
uh, past the end of the St. Lawrence, Lawrence River appears the name Chilaga. The word is closer to the current spelling of Chicago than are many of the variations of the Indian word that appeared on maps after the area had been explored and charted. Chilaga is a legendary mythical place that kept cropping up on early maps, according to Helen H. Tanner, a research associate at the Newberry Library and editor of the book, Atlas of the Great Lakes Indian History. It is tops on my list to investigate, she said. I would like to find a very early account in addition to the maps that mention it. You see it later farther south, perhaps closer to where Kentucky is today. Sometimes a mountain is shown next to it. I don't know if you can say it had a connection to pre- with the present day Chicago. Chilaga may have been an Indian word for this area in the 1500s or earlier. One possibility, though remote, is that Botero obtained his information for the map from the Vikings. He writes in his book that Vikings had been in North America hundreds of years before Columbus, obviously. <laughs> they had also been to Italy. And accounts of their fur trade in North America are in the Vatican archives. Some believe that they had settlements in what is now the Midwest. Now, what did they just mention right there? The Vatican archives. That is one of the places that covers up and hides information from the past. The other one we're going to get into is the Smithsonian. Because they have blatantly covered up a lot of things in their history. Giants. Um, what did it say here about them? Did they cover up? Oh, and the Grand Canyon, whether that was, is really an Egyptian area. So let's go on. More likely the name Shalaga came from the accounts of Cartier, the French explorer in 1535, who traveled up the St. Lawrence as far as present day Montreal. The name for the Indian village at the Montreal site was Hoshilaga a name that appears on a 1556 map, according to George Ritzland, a map expert. Botera's Chilaga could be a mere corruption of Hoshilaga and moved further west. Subsequent maps uh, could have picked up the change and moved it around even more. Or there may be a bond with the current place, which is now in the midst of a celebration of its 150th anniversary of incorporation. The name Chicago can be traced directly to Robert Cavi, uh, Cavalier, uh, Sueur de La Salle, a French explorer who used his name in a letter written at Chicago on June 4th, 1683. He was staying temporarily at the site uh, that is now Chicago, where his men the year before had built a small stockade with a log house within its enclosures. Two years earlier, the Indians had applied the name Chicago to a fort that LaSalle built at Lake Peoria. Chicago, spelled many different ways, is part of many Midwest Indian languages. It can be translated to mean many things. And this is hilarious. Think, listen to the variety. Strong, great, skunk, wild onion, garlic, smelly, fort, and river. So it could be any of those. So it goes, <laughs> popular interpretations tend towards skunk and wild onion, though more scholarly ones lean towards strong or great. So they have no clue. No clue. It, they're just throwing it out there. 
a prominent Indian was named Chicago, but it is thought that he was named after the area. So there goes that one. Was there a commonly cited prehistoric area known as Shulaga? Did the Indians, as well as the explorers and mapmaker Botero, know of it? Did the Indians then apply uh, the name to LaSalle's two forts? No one is certain, but it is at the top of Helen Tanner's list to investigate. It sometimes turns out that the statistically far, uh, most far out possibility turns to be the right one. Let's look at that one again, she said. It is... It sometimes turns out, she said, that the statistically most far out possibility turns out to be the right one. Sometimes, right? So, uh, yeah, she, I'm interested. We should see. Uh, I should look that up. What's her name? Helen, Helen H. Tanner. Let's see what Miss Helen H. Tanner has been up to. If she found it, I should have done this beforehand. I meant to. Uh, She died in 2011. Damn it. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to. I'll dig into that and see if Helen did find anything deeper on it. But I didn't find anything in any of the articles that I read. Um, So sticking to that whole Chicago area um, idea. I want to show you share this story with you because this is right up the show's alley. And and after talking to you after the presentation that I did that got banned from YouTube, you got to go over to Odyssey and BitChute to check that out. So go to the Great Deception podcast over on Odyssey and BitChute and you can see my uh Chicago World's Fair video. And it's kind of a history of Chicago. I look at it uh in the 1800s. And Basically, what this guy, uh, what's his name here? Uh, Frederick Dodson put an article out here called The Fake History of Chicago. Now, I, I looked up this guy and he's got, he's written tons of books, uh, which obviously doesn't make him absolutely the most credible person ever, but he has written four um, false history books or fake history books, he calls them. So he's on our side of, of the whole idea that, listen, we've been taught a lot of bullshit and it's time to call him out on it and just say, listen, your, your story does not add up. And that's what he does here about the whole history of Chicago. And I did it a lot in my uh, presentation as well. Uh, but he, let's get into it. He goes, in school, history felt boring. Agreed. I hated history in, in school. But when I was outside of school, I loved it. I used to listen to my grandfather talk about stuff all the time. It was beautiful. But then when I get in school, they just made it so boring, tedious, and all about numbers and stupid shit instead of teaching us the fun stuff. It's like, you know, when you go to church and they they never talk about any of the cool shit. They never bring up giants, never talk about any of the, the you know, the real interesting stories in the bible it's always the same bullshit to push their narrative so i agree with him today he goes i realized it bored me because it's fake and there you go how can they make it interesting if they're not telling you a real story the feeling of boredom served to tell me it's fake but i didn't get the message i thought boredom meant it's not for me and that's exactly how i felt and why i really want to share this article is basically because of this and a couple other things he says 
aside from the the great evidence that he supplies but that's what they do to it they make it boring they make it so it's not interesting so that then you lose interest and say oh this isn't for me and the ones who do continue they're just following most of them are on the brainwash path but then you get into people like graham hancock who get outside or randall carlson or i mean the list goes on and on i'm not, I'm not going to just keep naming names but the people who are actually going counter narrative and actually getting out there and, and and poking holes in the narrative and questioning the narrative questioning everything and that's the way it should be he goes How fake is the history you learn in school on TV? Is it a little fake because of human error? Or is it partially fake because history is written by the victors of war? Or is it completely fake because planet Earth is not at all what it seems? Beautiful questions right there. Why the fake history? And like I said, the teachers that teach it have just been indoctrinated with the same story. So they're doing it by human error right? That's layer one. Then you get into layer two are the people who are writing the history. We talk about the Jesuits rewriting history, a whole bunch of different groups that have had their hand in rewriting history. Okay. The Vatican comes to mind when we think about that, but then he also goes, or is it completely false because planet earth is not at all what it seems. He goes, the more I learn, the more I think it's completely fake from A to Z fabricated reality. I've written four books on the fake history. I enjoy, I take joy in disrupting our habitual way of seeing. I love this guy. Frederick Dodson, guys, go support Frederick Dodson. I'm actually going to try and find his four fake history books and we'll pick them up because I think this guy, we need more Frederick Dodson out there. You know, it, it is. Almost everything is a story. And you'll see as if you listen to this podcast that that what they've done is is (laughs) they were sloppy in creating the story because they made it so vast and complex that we're now with the amount of eyes that are on it, finding the holes in their stories. Some may say they fabricated a thousand years of our history. They certainly created the calendar, which has thrown all the timing off. Ethiopians use a different calendar, and I know we went into that uh, in one of the other episodes. But yeah, it's it's they've just messed with time. So, and, and what they've done in the process is written the story to fill time. And as different factions take control, the story and the narrative has to change to match the way they want it to be reflected. So you'll see historical figures flip-flopped on. You'll see people like Napoleon, right? The myth of Napoleon being this little man with Napoleon syndrome. And all, all, you know, they create all these myths to get you to think about the narrative their way. So let's go. This idea seems scary to a lot of people. The implications, right? That cognitive dissonance kicks in. But it's not scary to me. It's liberating. I feel the same way, man. It's beautiful. When you can prove that one, that something is not true, it's a great feeling. 
Instead of having drawn and settled conclusions about everything, I can rediscover the whole world with new eyes. We need more people that do this. If you look at history through the lenses of fake, it's staggering what you discover, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so true. When you start looking at history as, and assume it's fake, assume what you, you've been taught is a movie and then look at it that way. And a lot of the times what you're going to find is a lot of little pieces and slivers in movies are actual reality that's been covered up and they put it off as a fantasy movie or it's just a movie, just a television program. Today, he goes, I randomly chose Chicago to prove this point. The fact that I can randomly choose any place on the map to prove fake history just shows how lazy the fabricators of history are. Boom. Just what we talked about. They're lazy. They got sloppy. They didn't think they'd have this many eyes. The internet backfired on them. Or did it? Did they want us to find out? That's a whole different story. Okay, so let's go. The common narrative around Chicago is that in the 1820s, it was nothing but a couple of houses and a farm at best. I have a clear memory of my childhood schooling where I was shown a picture like this. And you look, you look down below and it's, it's a, you know, a river with, let's see, one, two houses, you know, a couple small fishing boats in the river, some trees, but basically nothing. And it says Chicago in 1820 at the bottom. How quaint, easily impressionable as a child. I had no reason to doubt this, right? Like, I mean, and that's the part that I'm trying to get across to my son um, is that, listen, man, I get stuff wrong. So do you think your teachers could be wrong about stuff? So you have to question everything and you have to go look into it on your own. Don't just believe people at face value. And it's, it's, We've become programmed to just trust authority, right? That was the big thing in the 80s. Trust authority. No, that's brainwashing, guys. Think for yourself. Question everything. He goes, I like this picture and stared at it for a while. The teacher would give me good grades if I learned this stuff. And so I locked this content into my mind. It became a foregone conclusion. I was happy that I had learned something, not realizing that my mind had just closed it to other possibilities. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're steering you in a direction of what's real and what's not real, what's possible, what's impossible, what's our story and what's his story. And imagine is listed on historical websites for Chicago in the 1830s is the image below. Okay. And what what you have is basically swampland and on either side of the swamp is uh, what you have here is two house on either side. And then there's some sort of pole here. I don't know what this would be doing. This big wooden pole. And then there's just people around the outside of it. It just, It makes it seem like there's nothing there. Okay, so this is the 1830s. And you have to remember this because watch. He goes, not much change in 10 years between 1820 and 1830. And he goes, according to this Wikipedia map, the population in Chicago in 1830 was close to zero. You'll see a smattering of population. Um, Yeah, there's really nothing. One could say that Chicago didn't exist as a place. 
a couple of houses in the fields aren't even a proper village. Then, here we go, in 1853, so 20 years later, Chicago was a sprawling city with massive cathedrals, factories, banks, uh, build, uh, bank buildings, courthouses, and high-rises. I mean, look at this. This is what they're showing us then, okay? This is 20 years they did all of this in 20 years. And you'll see some of these buildings are massive. Let me see if, I, if it goes in any clearer. But yeah, you'll have, you have big buildings. You can see church here. You can see some building, high buildings there. Some high rises all along here. Another church. And that's the other thing in this. When you start looking, there are so many churches for 20 years. I mean, there's another church out here. I mean, this, it's just amazing the amount of churches that they had there. So he goes, in 1857, so just five years after that, we have a megapolis that can compete with New York City, London, or Rome. Look at this, guys. I mean, so what you're seeing now is just, it's the square grid that we know Chicago to be today. And it's just packed. This is supposed to be 1857. Because, wow, that's impressive. Imagine a small group of wooden carriage riding cowboys and pilgrims building this vast city within a short, very short time. What a colossal triumph. And then he goes, this now below is a photo of the Chicago courthouse in 1855, just to get an idea of the size of these buildings. Okay, so now, guys, if we look, the people barely come up to where the ground bottom of the ground floor windows would be. These windows appear to be about eight feet high on the first floor, probably close to 10 feet high and almost 12 feet high on the third floor. It's a massive building. This is a courthouse. Okay. 1853. Remember 20 years before it was just a couple wood huts. How? How did they build this? Okay, and there's another uh, another Chicago courthouse. And here's another Chicago courthouse from the 1800s. I mean, look at this building. This is even, even more massive. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Chicago courthouse. And it's not the same building. Not even close. The architecture is totally different. One has... They all, or no, no, that, that one doesn't. The, the first two have domes on the top. This one just has that uh, Greek triangle up top. It has some columns. <laughs> What's interesting, it has columns on the mid-level. Okay, so ground level, which is probably about, oh, geez, looks like 20 feet high, if not higher, is one sort of material. Then you get to the second level, and it's a whole different type of building material, and they have columns on every corner of the building. And there's, it looks like six to eight corners, you know, six to eight columns. So it's a columns per side of the building. Um, it's amazing. So then we look down a little bit. This is a view from the 1850s of princess street. So in 20 years, I mean, look at this tower over here on the left. I mean, that's 20 years, guys, they built all this. Where, where were, again, where are all the materials coming from? Where are all the laborers coming from? I understand the city's growing, 
but you are not bringing in the highest of skilled laborers. And that's been proven of these immigrants. Yes, they were hard workers and they were willing to work more hours, but they were not skilled. Many of them were not skilled enough to pull off what they've said to been pulled off. You get a sense of just how great a feat it would be to build an entire city like this in 10 years of the 1840s for people who could barely build wooden shacks, a truly miraculous undertaking. You can tell I am mocking the official history, yes? I've only been looking into history of Chicago for 10 minutes and I'm already sitting here with a gleeful facial expression, right? He's like, this is bullshit. I'm reminded of the cathedral in Barcelona, Sagrada Familia, which they started building. This is one of my favorites, guys. Started building in 1852. Today, 170 years later, it's still not complete. Okay. Then, then you look at one world trade, right? In New York City, it took 50,000 people 12 years to build. It's one building. He goes, and yet the history books are selling the idea that an entire city of advanced grand architecture was built in a max of 15 years by a scattering of Americans who were known for building nothing more than their little house on the prairie. Now, what they've done, though, is they've given like I, I'm looking into this because of the Chicago fair uh, are some of the architects now. I mean, I am obsessed with this fair. It's just it's since reading Howdy's book, everything about it and now everything about the city, too, is it just fascinates me because it's such a lie. And then you look at there's a guy uh, by the name of Daniel Burnham, one of the key architects of Chicago, and he actually you know came up with the plan for Chicago. And then you look at John Wilburn Root is another one. Um, there's all these big names from all over the country that are credited with building not hundreds, in many cases, thousands of these massive buildings in their lifetime. Thousands. Now, granted, they had big, big firms. So they could take credit for it. But I don't get it. The numbers do not add up. Okay, and we're going to look into that a little more as we look into uh, the Gilded Age of America and the City Beautiful movement, both of which, uh, you know, kind of seem like an uncovering of the old world and trying to link the industrial age with the old world, what was left of it. And they did a pretty shitty job. So he goes, don't get me wrong. It's not impossible to build a city in 15 years. I'm sure it has happened many times, but when it happens, we have proposals, designs, construction photos, documentation, and reports of such a vast project, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you think that if they were able to pull this off, it would be written everywhere. There would be books everywhere, pictures everywhere. Everyone would be writing about this. And that's what drives me nuts about the Chicago World's Fair is that there are some pictures of the architecture. But if you're building the biggest buildings of all time, don't you think you would have blueprints for that and save them and archive them? Nope, there's none. Nope. They built this whole thing and, and didn't save it to share it with anyone down the road. Makes sense, right? That's what you would do. Uh, okay, so he goes, we'll find stories of hardship and heroism during the gargantuan rise of the city, which has, uh, which was to become one of the largest in the world. As far as I can tell, such, such documentation is absent. Now, this is amazing, guys, and this is what I found when I started researching Chicago as well. In fact, there's a huge gap in the 1840s information on Chicago. There is zero photographic evidence. Okay, zero. There's nothing. 
on the 1840s. Like he said, he, he goes here. Searching the internet, I only found one panoramic drawing of Chicago alleged to be from 19, 1845. And you look at 1845, okay? And the amount of just towers that you see here in the background, that was a massive undertaking. And that's less than 15 years from the 30s, which we were seeing, you know, wood shacks. He goes, a bit sparse for most important decade in Chicago history. The Library of Congress runs a newspaper archive where you can find all kinds of U.S. newspapers dating back hundreds of years. You can find them here, you know, and you can click on Chronicling America. I input Chicago to look for newspaper articles from the 1840s. As you see below, I found articles from the 1830s and 1850s, but there are none for the 1840s. This is the time we ought to find the most articles, right? Think about that. Because it's the time that Chicago was allegedly built. And he goes on to show here all the different images of some of the things he found. I used the search engine to input Chicago 1840, Chicago 1841, and all the way up to 1849 to find something, anything. But he finds nothing. A decade erased from history. Where is the evidence that Chicago is hustling and bustling town full of construction work and hundreds of thousands of workers migrating there from afar in the 1840s? Surely it would be shown or mentioned somewhere. He goes, hmm, maybe it was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1871. We have documentation of the 1860s, 1850s, 30s, 20s. It's the 40s, the time that Chicago was allegedly built that are missing. Fire is not selective. I love this guy, man. He's got a great, great way of writing. He goes, but then after a whole hour of search, a breakthrough evidence, Chicago was already a big city as early as 1834. And this was kind of along what I found. I found some pictures, some drawings from the 1830s or etchings, they're called, that showed a lot of buildings in Chicago. He goes, the source woodcut of Chicago, 1834 from the website encyclopedia of Chicago history. He goes, are you confused by now? So am I. The narrative says that in the 1830s, Chicago was just a small farm and a few tents. One of these two ideas of Chicago in the 1830s must be made up. The description below the photo says the depiction is more predictive than historically accurate. Since 1834, Chicago was neither this bustling uh, nor as fully and densely populated. <laughs> so, so basically saying this drawing is bullshit. Um, <laughs> it's not historically accurate. It's more predictive. Okay. Interesting. He goes, it's easy to claim that old drawings, photos, or maps are false because, hey, or because they do not fit the narrative. But I have an alternate explanation. Chicago would most likely look this way in the 1830s if it was already a big city in the 1850s. I'd say the woodcut shows the reality and that the images I was shown at school with the farm and the tent beside a lake are a fabrication. And I'm with him because just to think, I mean, even the stone buildings, you look at some of the stone buildings and, uh, you know, some of them that have the white facade i mean they already have aging on them 
and they're supposedly brand new. So there's there's a lot of lot of chinks in the armor here. So we'll keep digging through. He goes, oops, what's that? The structure on the left is said to be another courthouse built in 1835. So think about that. Why all the courthouses are there if you don't have that many people? And, and these are massive courthouses. He goes, the photo is said to have been a shot in the early 1840s. It is only 1840s photo I have found in a 40-minute search. That's not what Chicago is supposed to look like in 1835 supposed to be mostly empty land and some native americans peacefully fishing on the river how did this monolithic tower of pillars appear and if there was no population there at the time as claimed on wikipedia then who built it thank you that's the question the photo is anomalous it's one of those we forgot to remove this piece of evidence items and they've done that a lot and we're starting to find them it's hard to fathom how such a structure was built by the people who so we are told, built only wood cabins. Historians need to make up their mind. Either they were capable of building more than wood cabins, or there was another civilization before them. From where did they extract and transport the stone? Who was the architect? How did the construction workers deal with the attacks from the natives? Why was this style of building chosen, considering the American pilgrims were Protestant Christians who abhorred anything that reminded them of old Europe and Rome? Where was the public outcry when it was constructed? I found exactly zero answers to any of these questions. It's the same answers you get to the questions for the World's Fair, which is in Chicago, the great white city. While, I'm, while writing, I'm reminded of my time in school. I'd badger my teachers with questions. It annoyed them because many of my questions couldn't be answered. I got a lot of pat answers. That's something you'll understand someday. Well, someday has arrived and I still don't understand. He goes, this uh, image is from the courthouse website, uh, courthouse history. At the time writing this, uh, but we know how this stuff can quickly just disappear just to document, here's a screenshot from the website, okay? So he's showing the different build, the 1835 building. He go, how unlikely is it that I didn't find a single aerial or panoramic photograph of Chicago from the 1820s, 30s, or 40s? There are photographs of other American places from this time, all I found was contradictory drawings as imagined by different people. Okay, so that's interesting. We do see panoramas of other cities. Um, Boston has one, I think. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what time frame it is, but er, we're talking early panoramic photos. Um, and if so, why not Chicago? Again, are they hiding something? Or like he said, there's two, two stories being told. Which one's true? He goes, here's one that claims to be Chicago in the 1830s. And I mean, if you look at this, guys, this is a solid brick building here. A couple stories. Uh, you would have stores on the first level and people would live on the next two levels. They would be apartments. Um, he goes, that's the way I'd expect it to look if it was a big city in 1850, right? Yeah. Hollywood movies generally show the time period like this. 
So they give you the, you know, the wood, um, close knit old West feel. Okay. And he says, this photograph is claimed to be from Chicago in 1837. And if we look at it, like I just said, it, it, it looks like the old West, right? It's an old West town. It's got wooden sidewalks, wooden buildings, mud in the middle with horses being drawn. Um, and it's got that old West feel that doesn't look anything like Chicago from what we're told. And he goes, uh, but I don't believe it because I never come across a genuine 1830s photograph of such high resolution and quality. It looks more like a movie set. Take a look again at the 1835 courthouse. That's what genuine photos of this year look like. And that's, that's or yesteryear look like. And that's so true. I mean, look at this photo. It's such high quality. It, it, there's no way it's real or, or it's from a much later period, but it does look like a movie set. It, it, that, it, yeah, that's, a, that's not Chicago. So he goes uh, from a, from a historical website in 1833, Chicago was a wilderness outpost of just 350 residents clumped around a small military fort on soggy land where the Chicago river trickled into Lake Michigan. The site was known to the local natives as Chicago, Chicago, or the wild garlic place. And that kind of goes back to the onion uh, reference earlier. Um, By the end of the century, this desolate swamp had been transformed into a modern metropolis of 1.7 million people. It's amazing. So in 1833, Chicago was supposed to have been a desolate wilderness outpost and then two years later it has what looks like a cathedral and a pillared courthouse hmm wow those settlers really stepped up their game i've never seen that in one of the numerous western movies that i saw as a child everything i thought i knew about the 1800s i knew from hollywood productions right and that's that's the purpose of movies and television the programming Right. It's to give us this idea of the way things were. And all of us have the idea of the old West in our heads. Right. The dirt dust bowl. Tumbleweed rolling in these old wooden buildings really close together. People, you know, tying up their horse out front. He goes, but none of these Western movies show these gigantic structures and cities. They show outlaws riding through empty lands and fighting the natives. Again, if these were simple, simple settlers and cowboys, would they really build these types of buildings? Or perhaps there is more to the Native Americans than we are told. A final knockdown of the official story is provided by an 1830 map by mapmaker James Thompson. Okay, so look at this map. What we have here is, um, you know, buildings very closely built together um, along the Chicago River. And it is, you know, it says a maps. Yeah, a maps of the town of Chicago. I hate to break to you. That's not 350 people. That's a lot more than 350 people. And this is from 1830. Okay. This, and he goes, look, the street building layout isn't any different than it is today. It's not much different. 
That's what today looks like. Okay. And we scroll back and the city grid is basically the same as it was in 1830. So basically what we're looking at is they just built upon old Chicago, the remains of what was once a great capital city of an old world that we talked about in the previous antiquities article. He goes, this map proves that Chicago was already well-established in the 1830s with streets, blocks, neighborhoods. It was not a farm beside a river. And he goes, uh, a newspaper clipping from 1832. And what this says is uh, September term, Cook Circuit Court, 1832. Okay, so this is Chicago. And it talks about um, the courthouse in Chicago, right? 1832. And that's that giant courthouse we saw previously that they said didn't exist because it was just a bunch of farmland. And he goes, how did Chicago have an established courthouse with ongoing proceedings when, according to historians, 1832 saw nothing but tents and wood shacks? Imagine building a courthouse for a hamlet with a population of 10 people, right? You're not going to build these massive buildings if you don't have the population or the need for them, unless you're just repurposing them, which is entirely possible. It's entirely, entirely possible. Okay, so he goes, now, let's venture back even further. A clipping from 1794. And I'm going to try and read it here, but some of the S's look like F's. That should they not be able to collect in force sufficient to fight this army, their intention is to move the Spanish side of the Mississippi, where part of their nations now live. That blue jacket told him, LaSalle, that he intended to move immediately to Chicago on the Illinois, that the Indians have wished uh, for peace for some time, but that Colonel McKee always dissuaded them from it and uh, stimulated them to continue war. So Chicago doesn't seem like this desolate area. In 1794, they're talking about going up to Chicago and moving on the river. So let's go to 1804. It goes, the rations are furnished in such uh, quantities that there shall at all times during the term of the proposed contract be sufficient for the consumption of the troops at, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cut off. It almost looks like Michigan, um, Mackinac, Detroit, Niagara, and Chicago for six months in advance and at each of the other posts of the Western waters for at least three months in advance of good and wholesome provisions. Uh, if the same shall be required, it is also to be permitted to all and every of the commandants of fortified places or posts to call the seasons when it is the same can be transported or at any time in the cafe or in the case of urgency, such supplies like provisions in advance uh, in the discretion of the commandant shall be deemed proper. So they're talking about in 1804, Chicago being a military outpost. A military outpost with only 350 people living in tents. 
for city, he says that only started in 1840. So sure are a lot of mentions before that. And if it were really just a couple of houses and a farm, would it be shown on maps? So let's look at this 1773 map. So you look right here. Oh, there it is. Our Chicago. Chicago. Who knew that Chicago existed as early as 1773? On the map above, it looks like a star fort. Aha. Do you see that, guys? Right here. Chicago might have had a star fort. Now, where have we heard about star forts? Oh, now we're now we're starting to open things. And this is where it starts to get interesting, guys. When you start looking at these things and start really analyzing and scrubbing what they've put out there, the narrative starts to fall apart. And all those people that call you crazy saying that it was, oh, those are just defensive. Okay. Yeah. That's what they're going to have a star fort here in the middle of nowhere where there's no people. They built a star fort. Okay. Uh, Okay. So let's go to, this is the uh, official timeline of Chicago history. Okay. Prior to 1850. 1673, Marquette and Joliet explore the site of Chicago. Chicago's written history begins. So that's 1673. We're told in 150 years later, 160 years later, that there's only a couple hundred people there. 1696, Mission of the Guardian Angel. Uh, Before 1784, Disable first arrives in uh, Chicago. You have 1795, which is the Treaty of Greenville. Okay, and uh, this is Fort Dearborn, if you're watching. And again, this is not a star fort by any means. It uh, What they have depicted here is more of what you would see as an outpost, um, you know, from the from the movies about, you know, the, this time period. It's just basically a wooden fence around the outside, you know, a bunch of trees, wooden posts around the outside. Um, a couple of large buildings that would most likely house and feed the people, and then some out military defensive outposts on either corner, um, and then an outbuilding on the outside for the help uh, who would have to defend themselves. <laughs> Good people, right? Uh, 1803, Fort Dearborn is established. 1812, the Battle of Fort Dearborn. 1818, State of Illinois is admitted to the Union, or State of Illinois, I should say. Some people get pissed when you say Illinois. Uh, 1830, Thompson draws the first plat map of Chicago. And we looked at that before. And that was the one that had uh, a pretty significant amount of buildings that they said, ah, you know what? This might be a little of an exaggeration. Okay. 1832, you had the Black Hawk War. 1832, 1849 to 1855 and 1866 to 1867. Cholera epidemics hit Chicago. Okay, so that's the other thing you have to remember. That would, that's about, it makes about as much sense as if you were just to have, you know, worked at warp speed from 2020 to 2022, there were very few people who could, why? 
because when things shut down, when people get sick or when, when they do things like that, what did they do? So you have supply chain issues, you know, manufactured or real. They are, there are supply chain issues. There are shortages. Go ask my buddy, Ron from the wicked planet podcast, how, how easy it is to order auto, auto parts right now. You know, it's good luck getting a brand new car right now. Slim pickings. Okay. And that's what they're, you're, you're saying that during this time when there is a cholera epidemic that everyone is at risk of, you're building massive amounts of buildings at record speeds. Okay. And he goes, I'm impressed to find a visit to Chicago as far back as 1673 and a whopping 147 years before Chicago was a farm and a few houses. You know, if it was almost nothing in 1820, what might it have been in 1673? Less than nothing. Apparently it was defined as a site that could be visited. All I learned about Jacques Marquette and visit and his visit is this in October 1674, he left Green Bay to found a mission among the Illinois, whom he and Joliet were the first Europeans to have visited. Um, in December, his health obliged him to stop at Chicago, from which he set out again on March 30th, 1675. It seems mysterious to me. Stop at Chicago, yeah, like. So you're telling me in 1820 and 1830, there was basically nothing in Chicago. But in 1674, this guy who was having health issues decided to stop and stay in Chicago for six months. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. You're going to a city, look for help. And it goes, ah, and here's where it gets interesting. Marquette was a Jesuit, we learn. It is said that in 1696, the Jesuits established a mission in Chicago. Then nothing is known about the mission or Chicago for 100 years until 1784, when Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable arrives in Chicago. Du Sable, it is taught, is the founder of Chicago in 1784. Okay, but yet we're learning that the Jesuits had missions here in 1696. People were here in 1673, 74. And it goes, uh, Point to Sable was, uh, is recorded as the first, uh, first recorded as the living at the mouth of the Chicago River in a trader's journal of early 1790. By then, he had established an extensive, prosperous trading settlement in what later became the city of Chicago. He sold the Chicago River property in 1800 and moved to the uh, port of St. Charles, where he licensed to run a ferry across the Missouri River. And he goes, uh, the text above says he had established an extensive and prosperous trading settlement. Is that to say that in 1820-1830 pictures depicting Chicago as nothing but a farm and empty land or fiction? This is supposed to have been Chicago when Baptiste found it. And guys, if you're looking, it's comical. It's got, let's see, probably about a dozen teepees on one side of the river. And then you have one house on the other side of the river. And you can probably see for, you know, 100 miles. There's nothing in sight. That's what we're supposed to believe. However, Mr. DuSable was able to form an extensive and prosperous fur trading in this 
So it goes basically one house and a collection of tents, like I told you. So when the Jesuits found it in the 1600s, it was empty. When Disable found it in the 1700s, it was empty. And in 1830, it was mostly empty. Makes sense, right? I mean, he goes, and, and yet throughout the hundred years of people kept referring to this emptiness as Chicago, a place to visit, go, stay, and trade. It's, it's just asinine, guys. History books tell of a war in Chicago called the 1812 Fort Dearborn Massacre. Now, whenever we have a massacre on our hands, it is a, a story where the victors suffered tremendous losses. Okay, that's how the massacres work. Now, whenever the victors massacre a large number of the enemies, it's called a battle. So let's read about this. The Chicago Massacre in 1812. The garrison at Fort Dearborn at the mouth of the Chicago River, together with the few civilians in the neighborhood, men, women, and children, left the place for a long overland march of 300 miles through the woods of Michigan on August 15, 1812. The ill-starred General Hull was in command at Detroit, expecting little battle with the British force, and he sent orders by an Indian runner to the commander at Fort Dearborn to move his command to Detroit after disposing of the government stores and property as he thought fit. And he goes, I find it interesting that uh, Fort Dearborn is referred to as a neighborhood from which civilians were enlisted. When there's a neighborhood, there must be a city, or at the very least a village, right? The text is more in line with the neighborhood map by James Thompson we saw above. That's an 1830 map right? With all Chicago densely populated. It goes, and here's a map from 1570 of Abraham Ortelius. It was made long before the Jesuits arrived. Okay. And now this was the map I was looking for. So now if we, if we zoom in here, okay. And you'll see right here, let me try and see if I can get one more. No, I won't let me go in anymore, but right here, you're going to see Shilaga. There it is. Right there. Shilaga. That's what we're just talking about. And it's right where Chicago would be. Okay. Uh, Let me go back to normal. All right. So he says the map you see above is either somewhat inaccurate or the uh, geography was different in those days. But where Chicago is today, we see a place called Shilaga. The ancient name of Chicago is Shilaga. It was on the map before its history, in quotes, began. And remember, this map is from 1570, guys. What is Shilaga? Is is it a Native American settlement? What do historians say about it? I searched around and found they say nothing. This is the only reference I found about it from the Chicago Tribune, which speaks about another map from Venice, but doesn't seem to even bother to show the map. Venetians were dominant world traders of the time. The article dismisses Chilaga as a mythical place because everything that does not fit fake history is called mythical, right? We talked about that before. It's called fantasy, movie, 
It's not reality. Does anyone seriously believe that the people who were dead serious about their trade as the Venetians are would put fantasy places on their travel maps? Right, guys, it doesn't make any sense. They're not going to just make this shit up like the inheritors did. Now we're going to look at the old water tower. It goes, I browsed around Chicago until I found a random old building, the water tower. You see it in the image headlining the article. Across from the water tower, we find a structure with another tower-like chimney that belongs to the overall old Chicago waterworks. And look at this building. It's a beautiful old building. I mean, look at that thing. Oh, looks like a castle. If the history of Chicago is fabricated, we must find evidence for that, uh, not only by looking at the whole, but also the particular. This is a drawing of the waterworks said to be from 1886. Okay, so you look at it, and you have the giant waterworks tower here, and then there's the other tower from the other building over there. You have some people moving around, right? Plaza-like area. And then he goes, and he goes, and this is said to be the photograph from before the Great Fire of 1871. Okay. And you look at the close-up. Okay, and it looks the same. And he goes, here's Wikipedia, quoting from the Smithsonian Institute. The Chicago Water Tower is a contributing property and landmark uh, in the Chicago, old Chicago water tower district uh, in Chicago, Illinois, United States, that is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Built to enclose a tall machinery of powerful water pump in 1869, it became particularly well known when it survived the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, although the area around it was burnt to the ground. So it was built in 1869, right? in a preferred style of the farmers settling in the area, right? He goes, too bad then that there is no mention of it in the Library of Congress uh, newspaper archives of 1869. I spent some time browsing Chicago newspapers, particularly the Chicago Tribune for 1869. Many things were mentioned in 1869, but not the completion of such a prominent building. You can try it for yourself. Click on the link above, type in search, Water Tower, Chicago, and then click on search by date. No word of the building, the water tower. How did I know this would be fake history before looking at it? Because the architectural style is unlike Americans of the 1800s. The architecture appears to be belong to some other forgotten civilization, one that may have been active worldwide. In the last 30 years, I've privately looked up many buildings of this style and always found historical fabrication around it, guys. And that's what I've uncovered in mine. It's just, it's all a bullshit story. These things just pop up out of nowhere. And that's, you know, when I'm talking about the City Beautiful movement, it, you the vast number of buildings that were built supposedly from 1850 to the early 1900s that were destroyed by the mid 1900s is ridiculous. And we will, hopefully I'll be able to get deep into that um, here in the near future. Cause that's one of the many topics I want to cover because it just doesn't make sense. Again, looking at what we've been told, 
now is there stuff that we haven't been told you know technology equipment yeah but there's no pictures of it either that's the other thing there's no pictures of it to 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 support their side of being able to do this in these years okay so it goes another example from the other side of the world he says and what we're looking at here is uh i don't know it's you know kind of a steeple in the middle and then you have some uh, a town in the background i guess um yeah light post here in the foreground let's see what he says you could tell just from looking at the photo that something is amiss one style of architecture is a stark contrast to all the others around it which makes sense so we go back to the image i mean look at the design and the intricacy of the tower and then the straight bland wood shanty town except you got one other building back here we can see that is pretty looks pretty uh and sticks out i should say from the rest this image is from 1860s in dundon new zealand the structure that looks like it was taken from the top of a cathedral and there are grand cathedrals in the same city was claimed to have been built by those same farmers who made the wooden shacks you see in the background. Back to Chicago. If the clock tower was built in 1869, the newspapers would have mentioned it. Instead, I found a mention in the newspaper cooking from August 6th, 1866. Proposals for wrought iron standing pipe Chicago waterworks. It goes, um, scaled proposals will be received by the Board of Public Works at their office um for construction and putting in place of a wrought iron pipe uh something i can't it's all blurred inches in diameter and about 128 feet in height in the new tower of the chicago waterworks according to the plans and specifications uh at the said office okay because this article says that they want uh, to fit piping into the Chicago Water Tower. This is in 1866. Why do historians of the Chicago and the Smithsonian tell us that the tower was built in 1869? They're saying right here that they need pipes for it in 1866. And it also says into the new Tower of Waterworks as if the uh, waterworks already existed and the new tower was added or perhaps the building was already standing and then repurposed as the waterworks now to play devil's advocate this could also be for a future building that's the only other way I, i could see it i may have found the tower in the 1853 drawing but before we look at the drawing let's determine its exact location on the map okay so you see it's right here um you know a couple blocks over from Lakeshore Drive, North Lakeshore Drive, okay? Drawn to the right, uh, drawn a line to the right, right before the river bends and you come upon the water tower. Again, the drawing from 1853. So he goes, draw right, uh, draw a line. Yeah. So it'd be right about here. Drawing a line right before the water bend to the right, we also see a tower, just like our tower. This one gets thinner with height. Is this a water tower? 
If so, the second chimney is missing. Is that the tower that was added in 1866? In the drawing, it looks more like a cathedral. To determine whether this is the water tower standing as early as 1853, I looked for cathedrals in Chicago. I did find a, a cathedral nearby. It's similar in architecture as the water tower. And if you look at it, you know, this does, this, this tower here of the church does resemble the water tower. But on the map, this cathedral is too far to the west to be the same structure as in the old painting. It could be, but it's inconclusive. Even though the tower in the drawing looks more like a cathedral than a water tower, the cathedral above, uh, called Holy Name Cathedral, as well as other cathedrals in the area, are not at the right spot. Or maybe the drawing is simply inaccurate. In any case, newspapers from 1869 make no mention of this building's grand structure. Okay, I could easily pen a book a thousand lies told by a Smithsonian, but I won't bother. Anyone who cares to look will find. This is a close-up from 1857 aerial uh, drawing. Counting eight streets northward, we find a larger structure. Okay, I'm not sure we can see the tower in these old images, but I see the tower was not erected in 1869 because it's not mentioned in the newspapers at the time. Newspaper mentions of the water tower are earlier than 1869, but I found none that mention its construction. I'll complete this section with the photo I dug up on Reddit marked Water Tower in 1868, one year before it was supposedly built, as seen from Pine Street. So there it is. And now you're seeing both towers, right? And this is 1868. So both towers are there now. Now it goes ancient Roman America. How Chicago lifted itself out of the swampland and became a modern metropolis. It goes in 1857, fully developed buildings were being lifted out of the swamp. The article informs us. Had the old Chicago been flooded? Were these structures of a lost civilization? Was Chicago really dug out rather than built? And let's see if they, he talks about it here. Yeah, here it is. The raising of Chicago. This is such bullshit, guys. Four and 14 feet. Between four and 14 feet, they supposedly lifted the entire city of Chicago. And while they were lifting it, the, the nothing, businesses stayed open. Hotels didn't close. Nothing. So let's go. During the 1850s and 1860s, during the raising of Chicago, engineers carried out a piecemeal raising of the level of the central Chicago. Streets, sidewalks, and buildings were physically raised on jack screws. The work was funded by private property owners and public funds because supposedly Chicago is built on a swamp. He goes, hmm, wow, I thought Chicago 1815 was just newly built and they have to raise it out of the mud. And uh, from the story, many of the central uh, Chicago's hurriedly erected wood frame buildings were now considered inappropriate to the burgeoning and increasingly wealthy city. Rather than raise them several feet, proprietors often preferred to relocate these old frame buildings, replacing them with new masonry blocks built to the largest grade. Consequently, the practice of putting old multi-story intact wood furnished buildings, sometimes entire rows of them in block on rollers and moving them to the outskirts of town or to the suburbs was so common as to be considered nothing more than routine traffic. So in the 1850s, they're just throwing, you know, multi-story buildings on these wood blocks and moving them around like they're nothing. Traveler David McRae wrote, never a day passed during my stay in the city that I did not meet one or more of the houses shifting their quarters. One day I met nine going out in Great Madison Street in the horse cars. We had stopped at least twice to let houses get across. 
the, fu the function for which such a building had been constructed would often be maintained during the move. A family could begin dining at one address and end their meal at another. And a shop owner could keep their shop open, even as customers had to climb through a moving front door. How ridiculous is this? Brick buildings were also moved from one location to another. And in 1866, the first of these, a brick building of two and a half stories, made the short move from Madison Street out to Monroe Street. Later, many such larger buildings, larger brick buildings, were rolled much greater distances across Chicago. He's like, say what? People rolled and carried large brick buildings across Chicago? I learned something new every day. If true, that's amazing. Unfortunately, I could find no photography of any of this taking place. And it's even more amazing that something that great wouldn't just be documented in a photo. And, and it's so true, guys. All these amazing accomplishments they never documented. I found no photographic evidence of the building of this massive city in the 1840s or the gargantuan task of moving it in the 1850s. Photography was around since 1820. Surely Chicago was photographed before 1853. We have many photos of the U.S. prior to 1850. This, for example, is Washington, D.C. in 1846. And you look, you see a massive, what appears to be an old world building, you know, brick, uh, stone and columns and everything. You see some nice brick houses here. Um, or they could be wood houses with brick chimneys. Uh, I can't really tell from the picture. Notice how close the people lived to the seat of government in those days. One of the trademark Chicago places is the Wrigley Building, said to have been built in 1920. It still stands today. This is a photo from 1929. I mean, you look at this building, guys. It is massive. It's two towers. One of them has a clock tower on top. I mean, these are just massive buildings. It is said, uh, said to have been built by the architect team of Graham, Anderson, Probst, and White. The team created almost every significant building in Chicago. They also created the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., the Capitol Building in D.C., the State Bank of Chicago, the Strauss Building of Chicago, the Municipal Building, uh, Municipal Court Building in Chicago, the local Federal Reserve Bank Buildings, a government explosives plant in West Virginia, the Washington, D.C. Post Office, the Suburban Station in Pennsylvania, Shedd Aquarium uh, in Chicago, uh, the Chicago Field Museum, Terminal Tower, Cleveland, Motorola World HQ, Civic Opera House, Chicago, several structures of the University of Notre Dame, and many others. The predecessors of this amazing architectural team was Graham, Burnham, and Company. And before that, Burnham and Root, who I mentioned before, who built just as many grand buildings. They were also the primary contributors to the massive Columbian Exposition that made Chicago look like ancient Rome, right? I mean, and that's what's amazing about it. Um, when you get to the World's Fair, it's like a whole nother animal, um, and it's one of those where it doesn't make sense. You know, it, the story doesn't add up. They look at this. I mean, they built all this in two years. The world exposition of the 19th century mysteriously erected as a fast pace and quickly disassembled or burned to the ground. Uh, and then he shows Howdy's book, um, exposing the expositions, ancient Rome in America. And he goes, most most books on fake history are poorly written, but this book is excellent. When I read it in 2020, I finished it in two sittings. Long story short, combining the book above what I uncovered while writing this article, I no longer believe that this architectural team around Ernst Robert Graham built almost every structure of significance across the United States. It's just not possible, guys. 
they, it's part of their narrative. They, they took these guys and they gave them credit for all this shit they didn't do. Um, I mean, look at this. This isn't the, sh- the shitty architecture that they tell us about. And how did they do it back then? Because there's a possibility that these grant structures were not built, but rather undug out from muddy swamp, which I think, or using hydraulic water pumps could have, you know, undug them and cause a bit of a mud flood in other parts. And that's a possibility too. These could have been the remains of the ancient and legendary Chalaga that the Venetians knew or perhaps even built. History fabricators simply ascribed all these buildings to the same couple of architects. The problem is that I find almost no designs, no construction plans or photos of any of these buildings. How is that even possible? And that's why I got the plan of Chicago and the drawings in it are such bullshit. It's like something my, my nine-year-old son could do from a architectural drawing layout standpoint. There's no buildings. It's just a layout of the land. He types, uh, I type Graham Anderson Propes white construction photo into a search engine and get back almost nothing with the exception of few photos. Um, uh, and he goes, and I almost, I find almost nothing on what should be the most famous architects of all time. My search term Howard White architect brings up exactly nothing. Imagine building the grandest uh, buildings the world has ever seen, but there's no mention of you on Google. Graham, who is even uh, has even more buildings to his name uh, through the previous his previous work with Burnham, Daniel Burnham, who's one of these people, is only worthy of three portrait images overall. If he had really built all these fantastical structures, don't you think there might be thousands of pictures of this man? Would he not be one of the most celebrated individuals in the history of the country? You get three pictures. Superstar designer Pierce Anderson is only worth two pictures. Edward Probst, builder of 100 grand buildings, has only two photos, one of them an obituary. Many famous buildings that were supposed to have been built aren't even mentioned on their Wikipedia page. For the most, uh, for example, the iconic Flatiron Building in New York. It's not even mentioned in, in, uh, in Graham's obituary. The old newspaper article said it was designed by Graham, but Wikipedia says it was built by Burnham. These names are used interchangeably. It appears that the most famous architects in recent history chose as their offices a wooden shack. Look at that. So if you're looking here, guys, there's this little shack that says Office of Anderson Propes and White Architects. And then, you know, It's just, it's unbelievable while building the field museum. So they built all these buildings from that little shack as their headquarters. This merchandise Mart Chicago also made by Graham and friends. I'd be hard pressed to find buildings built this large today. I mean, this guys, this building is insane. Look at this thing. Oh, that's a monster. The massive Masonic temple built by Burnham or grand, depending on which source you consult. Again, this is built in the 1800s, guys. This this Masonic temple. Okay. When was it? It was... Uh, it doesn't say here, but it was. I know it was in the 1800s. 
Uh, I did ma manage at last to find some designs of the Grand's team, especially more recent buildings. This is a 1925 drawing of the Terminal Tower in Cleveland. Okay. So we found we have a drawing at least. Concept design. So there are designs by Graham, Probst, Anderson, and White. But then I came across the paint, uh, this painting of the tower. It is signed by Hal Morris, dated 1925, before construction even began. So how is this, how is this painting done if, if this building's never even been built? The architects, Graham, Probst, Anderson, and White, designed the structure in 1925. It was completed in record time of only three years. Look at the size of this thing, guys. Three years it took them to build this. Bullshit. How then is it possible that there was a painting of a completed building in 1925? In discussion, forums on the internet, the following claim is made without evidence. It is a pre-construction rendering by the artist. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? If it's a pre-construction painting, how did the artist get it exactly right? He must have had personal access to the architects. I mustn't conceal that there are plenty of convincing construction photos of the terminal tower in Cleveland. If you do an online search, you find construction Im images of every phase of its building. So we have both design and construction photos. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Such photos are suspiciously missing with structures in Chicago, with one exception, the Merchandise Mart. I found construction photos of every phase of its building. So yes, this building really was constructed the way it says it was, it appears. Perhaps there is a more pictorial evidence of it because it's more recent. Maybe the photos of the 1800s are simply lost. I ran this and other photos through online photo manipulation uh, checks, image edited, and photo forensics. The photos seem to be genuine. That's wonderful. It means not all things are fake and we are capable of building big stuff. I also found construction photos of the Flatiron Building. But where, the where are the photos of the fairly recently Wrigley's building construction? Where are the designs? The building was started in 1920 and completed in 1924, according to Wikipedia. I found one photo of its construction in 1923, half finished. That's all they got. The problem? There are plenty of photos of this building. Uh, building being whole and complete in 1922 and 1921. Just a few examples. These photos are all marked 1921 on historical websites. And you can see it here in the backgrounds. You can see it here, clearly, from 1921 photo. This one marked 1921 in airplane view. There is no sign of construction. The building is complete. Yeah, looks done to me. This is a 1921 article speaking of newly completed Wrigley Building. Yeah. I mean, and this picture's from 1922. I mean, it's done, guys. I learned the Wrigley Building was completed in 1924 and still under construction in 1923 based on a single vague construction photo. Then I learned it was already up and complete in 1921. I'm not going to go through all the buildings by the people uh, around Graham. But with the exception, those arguments, I did not find a single structure where the process of design, construction, and completion is clear. This photo of the Wrigley Building marked 1922. In all honesty, does the building look like it's under construction? Does it look brand sparkling new? No to either of those, guys. It does not. If you look closely, there are already uh, shop signs 
curtains and signs of tear uh, signs of wear and tear on this newly constructed or yet to be constructed building. I'm not surprised that I found no full panorama or aerial view of the Chicago river from any time before 1921. Not one. The reason for this could be that the Riga building was much too prominent. If it was already standing before 1921, could it be seen on almost any view of Chicago River, as well as the other buildings that were supposedly built in the 1920s. If there are fabricators of history, they simply went and removed any and all aerial images of Chicago pre-1921. And this must be one of the strangest photos of the Chicago Field Museum around. So what it is, guys, is it's this massive museum in the middle of what appears to be just dirt mounds. And these people are walking a plank to go to the building in in line and there's just one gentleman with you know black coat and a hat standing off to the side it is presented across history websites as nothing unusual but if we theorize about ancient structures being dug out of the ground this photo would serve as evidence because if you look this looks like yeah this looks like a mud flooded building that they excavated this isn't normally how things work if you build like that you normally uh first have corresponding infrastructure I guess it's conceivable that they built in the middle of wasteland, but it's weird. This photo is claimed to be from 1921, according to the website of the Field Museum. Here's an image of the Field Museum's quote-unquote construction. They built it in the middle of nowhere, guys. Up on a hill. Right? We talked about this. You want to build on flat ground. Notice anything? I do. It doesn't look under construction. It looks complete. I agree. The site as a whole looks more like a digging work has been done than actual construction. Yeah, it looks like they've been excavating it. It's just po- it's filled with pockmarks and the way it's banked up to the building itself. It's not how you would build this. Very weird. The Wikipedia entry says nothing about the construction or design. One of the finest designs in the history of America, and there's no mention on how it happened at all. I found only two construction photos from 1918. And what these construction photos appear to be are complete buildings with some scaffolding outside, much like we saw at the World's Fair, where they are just simply doing exterior touch-ups. And guys, there's just mud and debris everywhere outside for those of you listening. I mean, this is just mud and debris right up to this immense, beautiful building. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, look at this, these little shacks for the workers. And this, look even out front, that appears to be underground. Right, and those steps appear to be added after, because that's a whole nother entrance under there. How would you get up there? There's no way to get up there. So that's, yeah. In many other cases, these look more like renovation of a Roman temple than a construction of an American museum. I did want find one single photograph that shows general, genuine construction work that is said to be the Field Museum in 1915, but it's fake. I ran through forensics and it appears that the writing at the bottom is a modern Photoshop edition. Someone took a photo of some other construction and claimed it to be the Field Museum. But I wouldn't even have needed forensics. You can see with the naked eye that these columns and windows are too small to be the Field Museum. They bear no resemblance. I mean, yeah, look at, look at the difference, guys. No, not even the same building. These images are directly adjacent to Soldier Field Sports Stadium. It looks like the Roman Coliseum, guys. 
I'm not going to go on about that now, nor about many other things. The original version of this article was about three times as long. It could easily have become a book just on Chicago. That's because there's no end to this rabbit hole. Soon, I was looking at geometric shapes and lines between the old buildings, legends of the natives, ancient artificial canals in the area, images of step pyramids in ancient Illinois, skeletons of giants. There was no end in sight. I deleted the rest of the article because we have enough to make the important point. What you were taught in school is not reliable. Don't draw any conclusions. Everything is up for discussion. Take your life back, then take back your reality and history. Finally, take back your world. I don't expect history to be entirely accurate. It will always be written with bias and omissions. The same goes for my own books and articles. I am not perfect. Sometimes I make mistakes or show subconscious bias. But what we see here goes beyond bias or error into outright fabrication. In school, I never learned that there was a Shilaga in the 1500s that turned into Chicago in the 1600s. I clearly remember learning that Chicago didn't exist before 1840. These are not the result of innocent mistakes, but deliberate deception. We shall learn the truth and the truth shall set us free. And guys, that article took me a lot longer than I expected. And, but that it, it needed to be read because the, it just points out the blatant and obvious deception that these people take on over and over again. And Chicago is a perfect example. How many other cities, San Francisco is another one just like this. Okay. New York is another city with the history is not what we've been told many other cities across the realm. So what do you need to do? What you need to do is arm yourself with knowledge. Do some research on your own. Question everything, right? That's the key. Don't trust anyone or anything unless you see it with your own two eyes. And even then, you may deceive yourself. So with that said, folks, do me a favor. If you enjoyed this, share it. Give us a rating. Keeps us in the algorithm. Go over to YouTube. Watch the YouTube video. Give me a like. Go subscribe and click that bell over there if you can. Uh, I'd like to be able to go live eventually and maybe even monetize the YouTube channel. That way I don't have to monetize the podcast. but that's, that's it, guys. The great deception is real. Stay strong and question everything. Edward George Ruddy dies today. Edward George Ruddy was the chairman of the board of the Union Broadcasting Systems and he died at 11 o'clock this morning of a heart condition and woe is us. We're in a lot of trouble. So, a rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because you people and 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now because less than 3% of you people read books. 
Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And that's why woe is us that Edward George Ruddy died. Because this company is now in the hands of CCA, the Communication Corporation of America. There's a new chairman of the board, a man called Frank Hackett, sitting in Mr. Ruddy's office on the 20th floor. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be peddled for truth on this network. So you listen to me. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. So if you want the truth, go to God. Go to your gurus. Go to yourselves, because that's the only place you're ever going to find any real truth. But man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you that uh, Kojak always gets the killer and that nobody ever gets cancer in Archie Bunker's house. And no matter how much trouble the hero is in, don't worry, just look at your watch. At the end of the hour, he's going to win. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ain't like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off.